It's March 7th, 1920, in Los Angeles. It's a cool night in the City of the Angels. A soft breeze sweeps between the buildings, causing the leaves on the trees that line the city's wide avenues to flutter and dance. The experimental rumbling of an upright bass and the toots of an accompanying trumpet leak out from the city's many speakeasies. Aside from the music, the streets are quiet. Two men stride down the sidewalk. They're dressed in smart suits and crisp white shirts. Wide-brimmed fedoras are perched on their heads. One of them has a cigarette clamped between his lips, the tip glowing like a stoplight. They move with purpose and come to a stop on Broadway, outside of the Fifth Street department store. The store is a Los Angeles institution. The building is red brick and four stories tall. The store's wares can be seen in the huge arched windows that overlook the street. Items like bedding, curtains, and expensive wooden furniture. The man with the cigarette tosses it into the gutter. The water extinguishes it, and it dies with a quiet hiss. The other man knocks on the door. It takes a couple of minutes, but eventually the night watchman opens up. One of the men fishes in his pocket and pulls out a private investigator's license. Eager to find out how he can help, the night watchman invites the detectives inside. The two men from the street enter the store and they identify themselves further. They're from the Nick Harris Detective Agency, and they're here to arrest the night watchman. Shock blooms on the accused's face. He knows he hasn't done anything wrong, but like a good citizen, he holds his wrists out and lets the detectives cuff him. He'll be able to fight the charge later. It's when he sees the strips of linen and the homemade gag that he realizes he's been tricked. But with his hands already cuffed together, it's too late to fight. The so-called detectives wrap the material around his wrists and legs, making sure that he can't escape. One of the men waits with him, while the other checks the rest of the store. He climbs the stairs as quietly as he can, emerging onto each floor and taking a good look. On the second floor, he finds a cleaner and pulls the same stunt. When he's sure that there's no further threat of being disturbed, he orders the cleaner to lead the way to the ground level. There, he shoves him to the dusty floor beside the night watchman, secures him with the materials, and tells him to lie face down. Together, the robbers locate the store's safe in a back office. One of the men carefully places dynamite as close as he can to the lock, and he lights the fuse. Both men take cover, and they wait for the blast. Chunks of metal and wood explode into the air, smashing the office's windows and gouging chunks of plaster from the walls. The noise is deafening, and for a while, the robbers stay in their hiding place. Once the debris stopped raining down, the men scurry towards the safe. The dynamite has worked like a charm. Faced with a treasure trove, they grab what they can and stuff it into a suitcase. They manage to escape with some important business documents, some liberty bonds, and around $32,000.
That's approximately half a million dollars in today's money. Once the coast is clear, the night watchman and the cleaner help each other escape their bonds and call the cops. A short while later, private investigators Nick Harris and one of his men, Carl G. Armstrong, are called to the scene by police. Harris is told that the intruders identified themselves as two of his detectives, though he knows that this is not really the case. His detectives are hand-picked, and they're decent, honest men. The robbers have just made a very powerful enemy. Harris intends to hunt the men down and bring as much of the loot back to the department store as he can. However, Harris quickly finds himself embroiled in something much bigger than a straightforward department store robbery. The heist is simply the starting pistol for one of the most bizarre cases he'll ever be involved in. The case will bring him into the orbit of a man so depraved and calculating that he sounds like a creation from the mind of Alfred Hitchcock. However, this man and this tale of excess and cold-blooded murder really happened. My name is Mark Dotson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Los Angeles. We're following private investigator Carl G. Armstrong. He, along with his boss, Nick Harris, are under the impression that they're hunting down a couple of well-prepared and ambitious robbers. However, a visit from a suspicious wife soon leads them on a trail of greed and murder. From Noiser, this is the story of Bluebeard Watson. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Three weeks later, on March 31st, 1920, a woman emerges from the city's low-hanging smog like an apparition. She pushes through the swing door of the Nick Harris Detective Agency, her heels clacking on the hardwood floor, and approaches the reception desk. Nick Harris, the owner of the agency, is currently on a case. So it's Carl G. Armstrong who takes the meeting. Mrs. Andrew tells the detective that her husband has been staying away from home with increasing regularity. And she wants to know why. Oh, sure. He told her that he worked for the government as a special agent. And that would explain why he wouldn't be allowed to talk about his excursions. But she thinks that the story is just a little too convenient. Mrs. Andrew also tells Armstrong about a black case that her husband always carries with him. He's very secretive about its contents and refuses to open it when in company. At the moment, there doesn't seem to be a case for the detectives to investigate. If the husband is a government agent, secrecy is one of their main currencies. He has every right to keep information about his job close to his chest. To Armstrong, it sounds like just another domestic dispute, but he's been a part of enough investigations to know that not everything is what it seems. What if the wife's hunch is correct? 
Could her husband be hiding something in that black case of his? Something illegal? Eager to know more, Armstrong pushes her for further information. She tells him about their short courtship and hastily arranged marriage. Not so uncommon in those days. However, it's when she gets onto the dates of her husband's absence that Armstrong's interest is truly piqued. According to Mrs. Andrew, her husband was away on March 7th, as well as the following day. All right, so you might remember that date because it's the day the 5th Street department store was robbed. She tells him about some additional dates, and they all tally with other local robberies. It could be coincidence, but Armstrong's been taught not to believe in those. As the Nick Harris Detective Agency stumbled across one of the robbers who pretended to be one of their detectives, have they just solved the case thanks to an incredible stroke of luck? Maybe, but Mrs. Andrew has other matters she'd like to discuss first. You see, she's afraid that her husband is trying to kill her. Armstrong sits back in his chair and tries to keep the skepticism off his face. It's a wild accusation. I mean, after all, it's a pretty big jump from petty robbery to murder. Mrs. Andrews is assertive, though, and tells him her fears. On a recent vacation to Catalina, Mr. Andrew led his new bride to some high cliffs. They stood for a moment and took in the endless ocean and vast cloudless sky. It was a beautiful moment, ruined only by the fact that Mrs. Andrew believed her husband had taken her there to kill her. You see, out of the corner of her eye, she thought she saw her husband advance towards her with his arms outstretched. It was only when another couple walked around the corner that he threw his arms down and joined her at the cliff's face. The next day, something else happened. They were walking again, he a few steps behind. Discreetly, she watched him pick up a heavy rock. He weighed it, feeling the heft of the stone in his hand. Again, they were joined by another couple in the nick of time. She watched him scowl and throw the stone into a nearby bush. All right, so to Armstrong, this all sounds like an overactive imagination. But again, he's seen stranger things happen. A husband killing his wife isn't so out there. Had he taken her on a holiday to kill her? Had the couples that joined them inadvertently saved her life? There's too many threads for Armstrong to get a hold of. What he needs is to watch the man in action, to see how he moves, how he acts, and how he interacts with his wife. So Armstrong offers Mrs. Andrew some advice. The next time her husband returns from his latest venture, she's to do two things. Number one, act natural. Greet him as she normally would and play the part of a doting wife. Don't let him suspect that she's hired a PI. Oh, and the second thing, phone Armstrong as soon as she can. A week later, on April 8th, 1920, Armstrong stands in an alleyway, cloaked in shadow. 
His fedora lies low on his forehead, and the collar of his coat's pulled up against the persistent wind and driving rain. He wrinkles his nose at the unpleasant stench of urine that lingers in the alley and tries to focus all of his attention on the street opposite, where Mrs. Andrew is walking into the embrace of her husband. It's the first time Armstrong has set eyes on the man. Mr. Andrews is well-dressed, with a pinstripe suit and a hat not unlike his own. He's quite short, clean-shaven, and wears round spectacles. There's something about his appearance that's reminiscent of a garden gnome. There's something else. Dangling from his hands is the fabled black case. Armstrong watches as husband and wife disappear into a restaurant. He skulks in the shadows, stamping his feet in an attempt to ward off the intrusive cold. But it's no use. He's already soaked to the bone. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, the vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. An hour or so later, the couple reappears. Armstrong watches as they make their way down the street their arms interlinked. Armstrong wonders how he can get a little closer when almost immediately a chance presents itself. Mr. Andrews says something to his wife and sets the black case on the ground beside her before dodging between a couple of passing cars and crossing the street towards a tobacconist. Armstrong emerges from the alley and walks briskly towards the mysterious black case. As his fingers brush the handle, Mr. Andrew emerges from the store, shaking his head. Aborting the mission, Armstrong simply walks on and disappears around the corner of the street, cursing his luck as he goes. That was way too close for Armstrong's liking. At a safe distance, he follows the Andrews to their home, where they bed down for the night. Armstrong locates a phone booth and calls the sheriff's office. He believes there is something incriminating in that case and wants official lawmen present for the moment he opens it. A short while later, an automobile pulls up to the curb on the Andrews Street. Bob Couts and Harvey Bell, deputies that Armstrong has worked with before, usher him in. He brings them up to speed on the case and together they stake out the house. Stars appear in the inky night, and when the thick blanket of clouds part, moonlight bathes the Andrew house in an ethereal glow. The trio wait all night, but there's no movement. That is, 
until morning. The first rays of sunshine streaked the sky with pink and gold. Families of birds in nearby trees fill the morning air with their high-pitched songs. Across the street, Mr. Andrew emerges from his front door and ambles towards the trail path that leads to the hills behind his house. It seems he's going for a walk, and what's more, he's empty-handed, which would suggest that he's left his black case behind. Now, when he's sure that the coast is clear, Armstrong and Bell run across the street and enter the Andrew household. The detective asks Mrs. Andrew to bring the black case to the living room. He sits down beside it and, using the tools of his trade, manages to jimmy the lock. It springs open with a quiet click. Is Armstrong about to uncover the evidence of the Fifth Street department store robbery? His heart is beating fast as he rips open the top but is surprised at the contents within. Instead of the money and jewels that he was anticipating, he's faced with marriage certificates in a variety of male names, women's jewelry, and real estate deeds for properties across the west coast of America, as well as Canada. There are also dozens of handwritten letters. Many of them are from loving parents to their daughters. Some are casually written inquiring about a holiday or how a new house is taking shape. Others have a more frantic tone, the words laced with worry and fear, anxious parents wanting to know why their daughter hasn't written to them in a while. As Armstrong tries to make sense of what he's seeing, he hears footsteps coming from outside. He straightens up just as the door opens. Mr. Andrew enters. There's a sheen of sweat on his forehead, but the smile that was on his face is quickly wiped off it. Instead, he looks around the room, rage filling his features. He notices that the black case is open and that the contents are laid out on the floor. His eyes flicker to his wife and then to the detective. Before Armstrong can react, Mr. Andrew lunges at him. A fist connects with the side of his face and he stumbles backwards against the wall. Photographs fall from their hooks. The frames crack and glass smashes, cascading across the wooden floor. Mr. Andrew approaches again with his fist raised, but he doesn't notice Bell emerge from an adjoining room. Bell calls Mr. Andrew's name and while the man turns, lands an uppercut on his chin. The crunch of his fist on bone reverberates around the room. His front teeth tears through his lip, causing blood to pour down Mr. Andrew's shirt as he sinks to the ground. Dazed and with a red welt already rising from the side of his head, Armstrong unhooks handcuffs from his belt and squeezes them around Mr. Andrew's wrists. Bell reads him his rights, but rather than arrest him for robbery, he's arrested for bigamy. Once the formalities have been taken care of, Mr. Andrew is led to the waiting cop car. The interview room in the station is not what you'd call welcoming. There's a table and a couple of hardback chairs. There's only one small window 
and the glare of an overhead lamp is harsh on the eyes. Mr. Andrews sits on one side of the table. Armstrong and Bell sit on the other. The contents of the case are laid out systematically for Mr. Andrews to see. The marriage certificates are presented first, and Mr. Andrews is asked to explain himself. Mr. Andrew looks at the papers like it's the first time he's ever seen them. He shrugs and claims that he bought the black case at a thrift store. He liked the case for traveling, but hadn't got around to clearing out the contents yet. In fact, he's barely looked at what was inside. It's a barefaced lie, but Mr. Andrew sticks to his story. Armstrong calls for a break and takes a notebook from the case with him to a nearby office. He sinks into the chair, sets the notebook on the desk, and begins flicking through the pages. It's a curious thing. It's mostly empty, except for signatures at the bottom of every page. All of them belong to a different woman, and seven of them linked to the names written on the marriage certificates. Out of curiosity, Armstrong searches through records for the women. He finds that they either live on the West Coast or in Canada. The real shock is that some of the women listed in the notebook are either dead or missing. The case seems to have taken a funny turn. Originally, Armstrong thought that Mr. Andrew was one of the department store robbers, then a bigamist. Now, is it possible that he's a wife killer? Could he be a bluebeard? All right, now let's just pause here for a minute. You might be wondering what a bluebeard is. The term bluebeard originates from a 17th century French folktale. In it, a wealthy man called Bluebeard chops the heads off his wives. The term's been used to describe men who convince women to marry them under false pretenses before killing them. One of the most well-known cases happened in 1919 in France. Henry Landru was bestowed the title after murdering 11 romantic partners. So, could Mr. Andrew be some sort of an American equivalent? Well, there's only one way to find out. Armstrong leaves the office and he goes back to the interview room. He slams the notebook on the desk just out of Mr. Andrew's reach and asks him what it is. And once again, Mr. Andrew shrugs. He tries to play the innocent card and tells him again about buying the case at a thrift store. Armstrong flips to the back of the notebook and shows him the name printed there. Mrs. K. Andrew. The name of the woman who approached the Nick Harris Detective Agency. And Mr. Andrew's current wife. Yeah. Knowing he's been caught red-handed, Mr. Andrew shuts down. He point-blank refuses to tell the cops anything else. Except for one thing. His real name is James P. Watson. And he can prove it. All the cops need to do is drive him to a safety deposit box in San Diego, where he stashes documents in his true name. Now, just to clarify, from now on, 
we're going to be referring to the perp as Watson. So, is it a trick? Could Watson be trying some sort of escape? Armstrong isn't sure, but he knows that if he wants to build a case against this man, they need to be in possession of as much information as possible. Somewhat reluctantly, he agrees to the San Diego trip. The detectives involved in the case split up. Armstrong and agency boss Nick Harris decide to stay in L.A. in an attempt to follow up on some information found in the black case. It's left to the sheriff's men, Couts and Bell, to travel to San Diego with the prisoner. In Santa Monica, the sun is shining and the sidewalks are busy. Armstrong squints as he pulls the car into a parking lot and turns the engine off. Harris gets out of the passenger side and both men look up at the building they're stopped in front of. It's one of the most exclusive hotels in the city, built from red brick with floor to ceiling windows and a wide doorway. Inside is just as opulent. Ornate chandeliers bathe the lobby in a soft glow. The marble floor beneath them has been polished recently and reflects the light from above. The desk is manned by the manager, who's wearing a tailored suit and has a trimmed mustache. Armstrong explains the reason for their visit. Thanks to the correspondence in the black case, they believe Watson was staying at the hotel with one of his wives. The manager explains that Watson took the room under a long-term rental, though he's rarely there. Eager to help, he leads them directly to the room where Watson was staying, though it's rented under the name James Lawrence, yet another pseudonym. The room is in keeping with the rest of the hotel. There's patterned wallpaper and thick carpet underfoot. The furniture is made of dark mahogany and gives the room an expensive feel. But Armstrong and Harris aren't here to value the furnishings. They're here to find some clues. They begin by looking in the desk drawers and the dresser. There are suits, fancy dresses, and expensive leather shoes, but nothing suspicious. That is, until they look in the trunk at the foot of the bed. Harris kneels down and lifts the lid. Inside, he finds photographs of a woman with her children. There are property deeds, which had been signed over to Watson. And there are more clothes there, handkerchiefs and expensive shawls. But there's something else too. Harris lifts an expensive fur collar and a shirt from the trunk and lays them on the floor. They're creased and a little dusty, but otherwise in good condition, except there are dark stains on the underside of the collar. Of course, Harris immediately recognizes them for what they are, blood stains. Now, he doesn't want to jump to conclusions here. There could be an innocent explanation for the blood, a shaving accident, for example, but something doesn't feel right. Could Watson have been wearing this shirt when he killed one of his wives? Is the fur collar some sort of trophy? 
Back at the front desk, Harris asks who Watson was sharing the room with. The clerk rifles through the ledger and locates the name. His partner was a woman called Nina Lee Deloney. It's imperative that they locate her. The detectives leave the hotel and drive away towards the station to follow up on their lead. Harris hopes that his colleague's trip to San Diego is just as worthwhile. More than a hundred miles away, a police car thunders down a San Diego highway, Bell and Couts right in the front, while Watson remains handcuffed in the back. The two lawmen don't trust Watson, so don't engage in conversation with him. Instead, they stay silent and watch the vast green hills and a mass of leafy trees drift by outside. Suddenly, there's a strange rattling sound coming from under the hood. Smoke starts to spill out, thin white wisps at first. But before long, they're as thick and dark as rain clouds. Couts can't even see where he's going, so he eases his foot off the pedal. Bell leans out of the window and spots a gas station a short distance up the road. He guides Couts, and they come to a stop beside one of the pumps. A man in greasy overalls emerges from the shop and lifts the hood. He diagnoses the problem pretty quickly and tells them that he'll be able to fix it in no time at all. While they wait, Watson asks if he can use the bathroom. Couts walks with him and waits outside the restroom. When Watson is finished, he emerges from the stall with his collar pulled up around his neck, as if trying to protect himself from the cold. Couts thinks nothing of it, and soon the mechanic has fixed up the engine and they're ready to set off again. Couts continues to glance in the mirror, keeping a watchful eye on Watson. He still has his collar pulled up and appears to be shivering. It's only when they reach the building with a safety deposit box that they find out why. In the parking lot, Bell opens the back door for the prisoner. Watson doesn't move. Bell grabs him by the arm and yanks him towards the door. Watson topples sideways, his hand falling from his neck for the first time since leaving the gas station. Blood spills from a long, ragged gash in Watson's throat. The collar of his coat and the front of his shirt are stained a vivid red. His eyes are rolling in their sockets, and his face is white as a ghost. He's just barely clinging onto consciousness. Bell jumps beside him and puts pressure on the laceration in an attempt to stem the bleeding. He yells at Couts to get moving. They burn rubber out of the parking lot and drive as fast as they can towards the hospital. On the way, Bell frisks Watson. He finds a small pocket knife hidden inside the prisoner's shirt sleeve. As the miles drift by, it's clear that Watson's life is hanging in the balance. But they can't save him. The mystery of who he really is and the extent of his criminality will die with him. Bell can't let that happen. Presses harder on the wound and prays until the hospital looms into view. After hearing the news, Armstrong makes his way to San Diego. He paces the waiting room, head snapping towards the door every time it opens. Finally, 
After hours of excruciating waiting, there's news. The doctors are able to save him. They fixed the wound and stitched it up. Armstrong's eager to interview him as soon as he can, but is told that Watson needs rest for a lengthy period of time. It's frustrating, but it gives Armstrong time to build a solid case. First off, he and Harris try to figure out how Watson managed to snare so many women. And why I wanted so many wives in the first place. Because he was married to women from different parts of the country, the detectives figure that he might have used advertisements in newspapers. I mean, after all, it was a fairly common way of meeting a prospective partner. So they start scouring papers and quickly find what they're looking for. There's a reoccurring advertisement, which is always worded the same. It says, would like to meet a lady of refinement and social standing and in ordinary circumstances who desires to meet a middle-aged gentleman of culture. Object, matrimony. The message would end with the same answer box number, but no name. Armstrong tracks down some of the women Watson is married to. You see, he didn't kill them all. Some he divorced. Others he simply ran out on, never to darken their doorway again. Armstrong asks if the communication through advertisements is how they met. The unanimous answer is yes. Most of them have saved the return letter from Watson, too. The text is almost identical in each one. He indicates that he's wealthy and that he'll care for them and love them forevermore. The only major difference is the name with which he signs off. Seems Watson has many pseudonyms. The evidence is enough to get Watson on a bigamy charge. But Armstrong thinks there's more to this case. Could it be that Mrs. Andrew was right? Maybe Watson had taken her up to those high cliffs to kill her, after all. Perhaps his M.O. was to kill each wife and take the money and land that would revert to him in the will. The letters from worried parents found in his black case would lend credence to that idea. It's a good theory. But the thing is, without any bodies, Armstrong can't prove anything. And then, he gets the break he needs. Shortly before the bigamy trial is due to begin, Armstrong gets a phone call that'll change everything. Betty Pryor was one of Watson's wives. She had long brown hair parted in the middle and striking eyes framed by long lashes. She and Watson lived together in Olympia, Washington in 1919. Sadly, she was found dead near the end of the year, her head bludgeoned by a blunt object. It's only now that law enforcement in her home state have been able to identify her. The fact that Watson fled the area convinces cops that he killed her, and they plan to extradite him from California so that he can be questioned. Armstrong takes the information to Watson, hoping that it'll make him talk. When he's told, Watson's eyes fill with fear, and he begs Armstrong not to let him be extradited. 
You see, Watson is under the false impression that Washington still imposes the death penalty. Capital punishment had been abolished in 1913 and then reinstated in 1919. But the timing of Betty Pryor's death meant that Watson would not be considered for the noose. Of course, Armstrong doesn't think Watson needs to know that. At least, not yet. Instead, Armstrong tells him that he'll listen to anything Watson wants to get off his chest. In return, he'll do all he can to fight the extradition order. Watson promises to confess to the murder of Nina Lee Deloney in the state of California. He'll do it in exchange for life in prison, rather than being put to death. Deal is made, and Watson is led to an interview room. It's time to find out just what they've been dealing with. It's April 29, 1920. Watson slumps over a table in the interview room. The scar across his throat is inflamed and red. He's lost weight. The suit he's wearing hangs off his narrow shoulders, and his face is gaunt and unshaven. His voice barely even rises above a whisper. To start with, the information he gives is vague. He tells the detectives that he suffers from blackouts and sometimes is uncertain of what is real and what is not. You see, his father dropped an anvil on his head as a child, and he thinks that this is the root of his problems. He admits to killing Nina Lee Deloney. They were camping in the desert just outside of L.A. An argument started, and he hit her with a hammer. When he was sure she was dead, he carried her to the trunk of his car, drove to Borrego Valley near the county line, and buried her body in the sand. After that, he opens up. He tells detectives of other murders, admitting to seven in total. He killed Betty Pryor with a hammer, too. The rest, he took to bodies of water, where he drowned them. At the start, the murders were spur of the moment. But once he saw that he could make money from the death of his wives, he began to plan them. Monetary gain became his sole reason for killing. With only Betty Pryor's body for proof of his crimes and his unemotional confession, the prosecutor isn't sure the jury will see him as guilty. The police know that this could very well be the case. They need hard evidence, so they ask Watson to take them to the body of Nina Lee Deloney. Despite being told he has nothing to fear on the capital punishment front, Watson is still happy to help the police. It seems that he knows that his time is up, so he leads them to the desert. It's May 20th, 1920, in the Borrego Valley. There's not a cloud in the sky, and the sun beats down without mercy. It's still morning, and Armstrong fears that the formidable, unrelenting heat will claim lives if they don't hurry. A procession makes its way through the sand. Watson is at the front. He's frail and has to stop many times to catch his breath. Behind him are a team of police officers, armed with shovels, pickaxes, and cameras. They drag their equipment, sweat-soaking their brows, and running down their backs in rivulets. 
to quietly curse Watson for burying the body in the middle of such an inhospitable and remote place. Some even fear that he's leading them on a wild goose chase. Finally, at the desolate spot near the San Diego County line, Watson stops and motions at a point in the sand. It's just like every other spot for miles around, except for the formation of three large rocks, a sort of twisted macabre headstone. Under Armstrong's command, the shovels are thrust into the ground. The men toil for a while, and then hand their tools over to colleagues so they can take a break and drink some well-earned water. Sweat stings their eyes and stains their heavy shirts under the armpits. Birds of prey, perhaps sensing a meal in their near future, circle overhead. Their loud squawks are the only sound aside from the scraping of shovels on the sand. Suddenly, a shout goes up. They found something. Armstrong and the other detectives rush to the grave and are saddened by the sight that greets them. In a crude, shallow hole in the ground, there's a body. The legs are pushed up tight to the torso in order for the corpse to fit in the narrow confines of the pit. The dark hair is matted in blood, and there are numbers of deep cuts and welts on her head. Injuries consistent with Watson's story of beating her to death with a hammer. Before the birds overhead can feast, Nina Lee's body is carefully lifted into a casket. It's transported back to LA so that an inquest and eventually a funeral can take place. Armstrong's seen dead bodies before, but the manner in which Nina was buried and the casual nature of Watson's confession have ignited a fire. He wants Watson locked away as soon as possible, and it doesn't take long for his wish to come true. At the end of May 1920, Watson is sentenced to life in the infamous San Quentin State Prison. Rumors of the crime that brought him to the famous penitentiary circulate in the prison yard. Though the incarcerated men are there for some heinous crime, there's a special dislike for men who prey upon women. He's threatened regularly and attacked more than once. Fearing future recrimination, the warden moves Watson to the relatively safe confines of the prison hospital. Here, he thrives under the tutelage of one of the doctors. When he's not working in the wards, Watson likes to write even finds time to pen a confession, claiming he killed 22 wives. According to experts at the time, it's nothing but a piece of fantasy, an excuse to promote himself and make outlandish claims that he has no way of proving. However, Harris and Armstrong aren't so easily dissuaded. From interviewing him, they know that he didn't tell them the whole story. To them, 22 kills doesn't seem too far out of the ballpark. Watson passes away from pneumonia in 1939. Armstrong continues working at the agency for years to come. Nick Harris retires from the PI life shortly after the Bluebeard case 
and dies in 1941, just two years after the death of James P. Watson. The agency he created survives to this day. Since its formation in 1906, the private eyes employed by the Academy have solved well over one million cases. It's a staggering statistic and a fitting tribute to the man who started it all. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. In 1930s Paris, a beautiful woman is found dying in the first-class car of a metro train, killed, it appears, by a professional hitman. The victim is Letitia Turow. But just who is Letitia Turow, and how had she become a target? Inspector Moreau of the Judicial Police is assigned to answer this and other questions. The more he finds out, the more of an enigma she becomes. By day, she was a hard-working Italian immigrant and a respectable widow. By night, a professional dancer with a string of lovers. But it also appears she was an undercover detective on a top-secret mission. Was she bumped off because she ruffled too many feathers in the Parisian underworld? Prepare to be baffled by this locked-room mystery with a twist. That's next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. <laughs>